all the moves I've made, I've made because my wife has helped me. Right. My, my, my career partner um, has pushed me at the moment, and she gets credit for this one as well. I probably wouldn't have done it. I would have been too scared, you know, like, so, like, go for it, whatever. So whenever you have a partner who's willing to take those risks with you, it makes it a little bit easier. So I, I have to give Mary Beth some credit there. Um, the biggest move was leaving Cadbury because, I, you know, it's really in a good position. I had done a lot of things. We had done a lot. But to become... A president for you know it, I, I was named the president of, of uh, RC Poland to be a you know to to be to take that leap it wasn't going to happen for me at Cadbury anytime soon it didn't appear it ended up happening very quick as I just told you the story right it is. Um, so I took that leap I pretty, I would have never taken that leap if I didn't have people in my corner that was the big that was the and I was scared to death yes. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Julia Hartz is the co-founder and CEO of Eventbrite a global online self-service ticketing platform. Founding the company in 2006, the company went public on the New York Stock Exchange on September 20th, 2018, under the ticker symbol EB. Julia founded the business with her significant other, Kevin Hartz, which to me makes it all the more impressive. Julia currently leads the vision, strategy, and growth of Eventbrite. She drove Eventbrite to become the world's largest event technology company known for its great workplace culture. Julia has been named one of Fortune's 40 Under 40 business leaders, Inc.'s 35 Under 35, and Fortune's most powerful women entrepreneurs. My first question, though, was to ask Julia if she ever thought she would be in the events business. Julia, it's so great to have you on this episode of How Success Happens. You are someone that I have watched and admired coming from the event business back from when I had started in the late 1990s and aughts and always knowing and hearing and learning about Eventbrite. And it's just so great to have you and to finally be able to talk to you. And I want to start though, because the event business is very specific. And a lot of people who get into the event business or their focus is logistics events. And for you growing up first, tell us kind of where you grew up. And did you ever even think events would be something that you would be heavily involved with? Well, thank you for having me so much on this podcast. I'm excited about the conversation because I know that you have this deep history in event creation, which I really admire. I grew up in a tiny town in Northern California called Santa Cruz, which is a beach town. I grew up on the beach without really appreciating it. Uh, Jack O'Neill was our sort of local celebrity. And I grew up dancing. So I think that I definitely understood the power of great show Growing up, I was a competitive dancer and that was my my first love. And so I think when, when I look back at sort of why I am where I am today, the two things from my childhood that I'd point out are I started working really early. So the minute I could get my permit to work, I think it was 
14 or 15. I got a job at the Ugly Mug, which was the local (laughs) coffee shop. And I learned the value of customer service, uh, dealing with a few difficult customers over and over and over again. And the second thing was dance. It really did give me the structure and the framework to take feedback and make adjustments, be able to improv, understand what works in connecting with others. And that art form has served me quite well, even in my, my old years. And then, of course, the third is my, my parents. Always have to throw that in. (laughs) Of course. I have often parents. (laughs) And let me let me ask you, just from that standpoint, having two teenage girls uh on the younger side, but still teenage girls myself, and understanding the value of working at such a young age. It's something that me and my wife both try to really try to talk about, try to get them involved with. Looking back when you were in Santa Cruz and the minute you were able to get your permit or or driver's license and, and looking for that job, thinking forward to today, do you look at that and having that drive and desire as something that you've always had or did that grow as you were? Because without it, I'm sure you wouldn't be where you are right now today. Well, I think I think I I had the drive to want to have spending cash. (laughs) Anything works. Be honest, uh, you know, and so and I didn't even have my driver's license. I just I I don't know. I think you have to be fifteen to get a worker's permit. And in my mind, I I started working at fourteen. But you know, I mean, we make up stories about ourselves. But I think. Truly, I remember my mom would drop me off at 5.30 a.m. at this, because of course I had the opening shift because I was the runt. And I would open the coffee shop and there'd be this one woman that would come in every morning on my shift and torture me. Just just <laughs> nothing I could make would satisfy her. And I finally realized a few months in after being so upset because I really wanted to please her that she actually just wanted someone to talk to. So I started bringing, I would steal my, my parents' newspaper. They always wondered why Saturday they didn't get a newspaper. <laughs> I would steal it and I'd bring it to the coffee shop and I'd put it on the counter. And then she would walk in and I would point to something that was in the local newspaper and that would get her on a totally new subject. So that to me taught me such a valuable lesson. And I think the, I think the drive part was practical. I, I wanted money to spend on probably clothes or something. And or go to the movies. And and then one thing led to another. And once I think you're in the working world, you really understand the value of A, a dollar, and B, hard work, and then C, how to interact with people in a way that's not so protected. And I think that's something that's difficult to find these days for your kids, especially if you're in a big city. So, and we shouldn't be finding it for our children, by the way, as as I say that. <laughs> Well, you're you're absolutely right. And that is kind of one of the lessons as we learn, like you started and you wanted spending money and that's what you did. You went and you found a way to do that as opposed to today where I think it's a bit different, but you also were a dancer. And I know from seeing kids that dance and, and how serious and also how much effort and work is involved. So from your experience, even then growing up and dancing, how has that or how did that impact you when you decided 
to go into business? Well, I think there are three things that I can glean from my my childhood and that being my sport. We would dance about 20 hours a week. So it was a really, it was a very involved sport. And I think there's an individual component and a team component that's really important. The first thing is discipline. There's just no way to excel at dancing without having a core discipline, be it the foundation of ballet, the discipline to show up and work hard, you know, to continue accelerating. It's a quite athletic sport, right? And and so so that was the first thing. The second thing is that I'm I'm really good at adjusting and I learn quickly. And I do think that is not just cognitive. It's really it's it's a lot of like what I built in my muscle memory. I'm very grounded and I can I can glean feedback, I can take feedback, I can adjust on the fly. And I think that's something that I learned dancing. And then the third thing is integrity. Showing up for a team like that, you can't go to a competition and have a dance happen with a bunch of people gone. So the integrity to show up, to be there for your team and to give it your all was something that I think helped helped me in now being a leader of a team, right? And the expectations that we have around shared ownership and showing up for one another. I love this. This is going to be the only How Success Happens podcast that I am absolutely going to make my two daughters listen to because Uh everything you are saying and everything you're talking about is so true in terms of now finding and looking at you from where you came from, what you wanted, even the story about putting that newspaper down and being smart enough to realize this. It tells me why you've been so successful. But Talk to me first, because before Eventbrite, you you weren't in you weren't running or putting together a startup. You were really, I think, at that time in the entertainment business. What was your initial business, and what was it that you were doing that you were really passionate about and building a career around? I was really lucky. I ended up uh, getting a financial aid package to go to a small private liberal arts school down in Southern California, which was a, a huge unlock for me. I knew that I wanted to do something related to entertainment. I actually thought I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. And it took me about five minutes to realize that I didn't, I didn't want it as much as the rest of the people (laughs) in that first semester. I did not want to go to South Dakota and read the, read the weather. So I switched to behind the camera and was really motivated, not, not, not just about, you know, learning the technical part of production and development, but also by the student loans that I was racking up (laughs) by going to the school. And the school actually was small enough to sort of stand out amongst its kind of gigantic peer set in Southern California. So I had a real in to get great internships in in the industry. So I started, I was working and going to school during the day or at night, actually. So I had jobs that were in the evening hours, driving kids around to their activities. And then I had, I moved a lot of my classes to the night to evening hours. And during the day I was interning. So I was working for free uh, and I had some really wonderful experiences and basically was able to deduce what I wanted to do through my college career to the point where I ended up, my first internship was on the set of Friends. And that sounds so cool. And there were really cool parts about it, but I realized I didn't want to be in production. I did a, you know, a, a internship at New Regency in the script department and realized it takes forever for a movie to get made. And I wasn't patient enough for that. I, I then went over to MTV where I really found something that I, that I thought I could 
be my thing, which was development. Being on the cable side, being in on the cutting edge, kind of this team was was the team that discovered Jackass. So it was a bit renegade. And then also being able to combine art and business was something that that really clicked for me. So I graduated on a Friday and thankfully they made room for me on a Monday and I started working at MTV, the lowest possible position you could have there, which is I was like an assistant to two executives. And I got to experience this really magical moment. I mean, I was an intern when the demo tape came in from the guys over at Jackass. And, you know, it's just incredible to watch something like that take off and create this like cultural zeitgeist and moment. And I have lots of funny stories. When my time, when my time, time kind of came to an end there, I wanted to go do something around scripted. And so I actually joined the team over at FX and John Landgraf had just arrived or had was just about to take over from Peter Ligori. And we had The Shield, Nip Tuck and Rescue Me on air. So it's really early days of FX finding its voice and its its brand and really pushing the envelope. And boy, I am so honored to have spent time with that team now seeing what they produce and being so proud that I even got two or three years around them. But right around the time that I started at FX, I actually went to my first boss from MTV's wedding and sat next to Kevin, who is now my my husband, co-founder, co-parent, everything. And he kind of spun my life off in a different direction. So <laughs> yes. uh, my time in Hollywood was limited after that. And I kind of knew it. So I had a great like two and a half years at FX while we were doing the long distance thing, him, San Francisco, me, LA. And then we started Eventbrite. Well, I love that. First off, I love the fact because my own history, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And I was going to go to any tiny little town in the United States sending those VHS resume reels. No one wanted me I couldn't get anywhere. And that's when yeah, no, it nothing didn't know anyone. And I love the fact that you were thinking that I also love the fact and many might not recall, but some of our younger listeners, older listeners might FX at that. I mean, it was revolutionary in terms of the content and really what you were creating as a network at that time. So it sounds like you were able to get this incredible experience and and really to learn and understand. And and I love the Jackass reference because that was, of course, one of my favorite shows. But But tell me about Kevin and initially, and was it purposely set up? He was sitting next to you. And then how did you go from there and saying, you know what, let's start this business? Well, that one of my dear friends and early mentors, who was the bride and the wedding and her groom, they had been talking about someone who lived in San Francisco and Kevin had gone to college with the grooms. So I I sort of knew about him, but I was really young. I was 23. So I wasn't exactly, you know, looking for my husband. uh, (laughs) And, uh, and we actually ended up accidentally sitting next to each other, uh, during the ceremony. And I had, I was reading first Corinthians in the wedding and I was pretty nervous because I didn't have it with me. And I didn't know if it was up at the altar and I was, I was pretty freaked out. And there was this guy next to me who was sort of trying to ask me questions. And I'm like, 
oh, I got to focus. And then so I kind of let him in on what was going on. And then I went up there and I, and it was there, thankfully, because I don't know it by heart. And I read it, came down and he turned to me and he said, you were amazing. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> like, who are you? <laughs> what is this? And then we put two and two together and realized that we'd heard about each other. And then we go out on the steps, everybody's throwing rice or whatever. And I thought like, oh, I'll never see him again. because I was a cynical 23, old, old for my age. And, uh, and so at the reception, I was standing with my MTV crew and somebody said, uh, what's going on? And we turned around and there's a guy standing there with a waiter holding drinks, like, Hey guys, you want to be, you know, do you want to have a drink? And that's Kevin. He's like, he's like the human version of golden retriever. It was just like, so not, it wasn't sort of like overly presumptuous. It was just like, hi, I'm here again. And then at the dinner, at that point, he had done his reconnaissance and realized that I was going to be sitting at a table of guys he went to college with. There was like a neurologist and some guy, you know, pretty high up in the government. And right. so he just like obliterated that table, moved all the cards. And, and it was... Uh, I love this guy. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was, there was no, there was no... So we just had a ball and it was a truly, that was our meet cute. We had a, we, we were like love at first sight. So started dating, figuring out how to do the San Francisco LA thing. He'd come down. We would, we saw each other every weekend in 2004, thanks to Southwest Airlines. And <laughs> he would come down. I would take him to the MTV Movie Awards. Oh, and obviously I'm, big I'm working on Jackass. Like, I don't know that you can't kind of get cooler than that. And then I'd come up San Francisco and I would go to like a speed chess party at one of the PayPal guys' houses. And I was sort of like, what is happening? And eventually over the course of two and a half years, about two years, I'd say, I realized that his world was way cooler than my world. And it wasn't about the cool factor. It was actually about three things. It was about velocity. So things were just moving so much faster up here. Case in point, I was thinking about joining a startup up here, um, Current TV. And before I could really even get to signing the offer, Kevin was like, I have two things to tell you. One, look at this video on this thing called YouTube that you know my, my friend started. And two, don't go join a startup and make less than you're worth. Like join me and we could create a company together. So velocity was just like something that I think really drives me. The second thing was just that I could see the disruption happening. You could just kind of feel the like fissures of the revenue model getting disrupted in, in television and you know, this thing called tech starting uh, social media and the whole thing. So you could just feel that dynamic shift. And then the third thing was that I... I was really happy where I was. And I love, my first love is content. But God, you never want to try to talk a serial entrepreneur out of pitching you a crazy weird idea and it being something that works out. It's just like, it's really difficult. I mean, to say no to someone like, like Kevin. So I, I owe him a lot to sort of instigating that pretty massive shift for me. And, and I'd say like, it's almost like, he sent my life off spinning in a different direction, which I had, I was just going to continue climbing the ladder in entertainment. Yeah. Which we know just in terms of both coming from that background to some degree, just how difficult it is. And also I love how he said going to work for less than you're worth and not, not, not even that at that time, 
although that's a great sales pitch he had, but it's really true. It's so hard in that business to, especially when you were surrounded by everything going on in Northern California and people creating and building and not having to say for a director to be like, or a a studio to buy your film. This was, you could actually create something together. So I come from a long history of events. I've always known about Eventbrite. I always saw what you were doing and disrupting. Tell our audience just initially, when Kevin came to you and you started that business with your third partner, Give me an idea. What was the business? What was the idea? And why were you so passionate about starting it? Well, you know, I think it, it, one of the most gratifying parts about this whole journey has been Eventbrite's exactly what we imagined. We set out to do what we're doing today. And that I just, I can't underscore how fantastic that feels, right? Because obviously there's been a lot of hurdles in the way of scaling a business like this. And so, think that we we came to it from three different vantage points. I wasn't looking to be an entrepreneur. One thing that I realized in this experience is that I love to learn by doing. And that really unlocked a passion in me that I didn't even know I had. But I came from a perspective of wanting to help create more live events in the world. I had done a project at FX that really looked at fandoms. We went around the country and went to these crazy off the wall events. And I'll never forget the energy and just kind of like molecule shifting events that that made people think different, be different, connect differently, even though whatever the subject matter was, was so obscure. There was just this incredible energy. So I wanted to help bring the world together through live experiences in a way that really mattered. Kevin wanted to democratize an industry. His his background, he was a seed investor in what became PayPal. He built a business on the PayPal API called Zoom, X-O-O-M, which is an international money transfer business that helps immigrants send money back to their families better, faster, cheaper than Western Union. It's now a part of PayPal in in a circle of life moment. But he wanted to apply the same principle to a different industry and sell ticketing as being that last bastion of of just like very bad technology, super expensive, not accessible at all. And then Renault, our co-founding CTO, by day was this brilliant coder and by night is a prolific photographer. And I think he really was passionate about helping entrepreneurs turn their passion into profit. So we all came from these three different places and we bootstrapped the company and it was just the three of us for two years. And so when you're in that kind of dynamic, you have to really get close to your customer to understand what product market fit would be and how you might fit into their lives and what you could do for them that would be helpful. So the vision was to make it incredibly easy for anyone to create or consume any kind of event. We did three things, I'd say, against the grain right off the bat. The first is we were horizontal by nature. So we didn't focus on a certain category of event or a certain geo. We were all over the place. And, you know, we, we started out in kind of tech blogging meetups. And then I remember the day that we were adopted by speed dating events in New York. Um, and I mean, we were just soaking it all up and we conventional wisdom back then would be to build in one vertical and then apply that. Right. But we knew that we could actually create something that would democratize faster if it was horizontal. Second thing that we did against the grain is that 
We didn't raise money. We wanted to really see what we could do on our own dime. We spent very little money as compared to what people are spending today starting the company. And we didn't raise our first round until 2009. We started the company in 2006. And then of course, the third thing we did against the grain back then was start a company together as a couple, right? So this, we didn't have great examples back then. We had one and that was our, our, our dear friends, the Birches. And they gave us some great advice right off the bat. They said, divide and conquer, never work on the same thing at the same time. <laughs> and it still today is our number one rule. <laughs> I love that. Me and my wife tried to start a business and I will tell you it lasted two days. And um, <laughs> then we just figured we're both better doing our own things. And I have my business partner now I've always had. And uh, yes, that that's it's incredible what you were navigating. It must have been, especially at that time in San Francisco. I love the fact you were bootstrapping because back in those days, it was how much did you raise, you know, and obviously now, nowadays things are, are changing a bit as well, but it sounded like you had the team you needed right then and there to get to a certain point. What was it that kept you going? Were there initial challenges where you thought, okay, maybe this might not work or were there just, this is it, this, this thing's taking off? Yeah, I mean, I think I was there. I was always looking at what could go wrong. And that's how one of the many ways that I'm a yin to Kevin Yang, because he literally cannot see the way that something wouldn't work out. He has oh. eternal optimism. And so I would say what I've discovered is that I'm much more the operator to his entrepreneur, but we worked in different ways. I was marketing and customer support. So I was with cre event creators all day long, finding them talking to them, solving their problems. And I think that's what kept us going is that we could see that we were building something that helped what helped them do what they were doing faster and more effectively in a fully democratized setting, right? So we weren't trying to really take away from their brilliance. We were trying to get behind them so they could spend more time on producing the content and the magic and cultivating their community. We have had several hard moments, not least of which was the economic crisis in 2008 and going into 2009 and wondering if we would survive. And what happened in 2009 was, was beneficial to us that we had a very small team and that we were living, we were operating the company within our means. But also what happened was that actually more people started to adopt Eventbrite because people, as they were getting laid off, they were turning to the platform to either network with other people, learn a new skill, turn their passion into profits to start teaching. And that was really the renaissance. Like 2009 was a year that made event, right? And by all accounts, it was a really tough year for tech and for business. So as we came through that, we raised our first round from Sequoia Capital, which was our, our first choice. We had, Kevin had partnered with Ruloff both at, at Zoom. We really knew where we wanted to go and what we needed to do to get there. And we needed to build a team at that point. You know, we were like a, a, a team of like 30 and we needed to scale to a, a company of 100 and really go for it. So that was that was like first near death experience where we're like, OK, we could we this is this year will make or break the company. I think the second really difficult time for us was right after we went public. It was we were, had a great IPO. Uh, we are several hundred million dollars in net revenue. 
And it just was like, like a, like a classic case of growing pains where you've got a lot going on. We had just acquired one of our biggest competitors in music and the pressure was immense. We were just doing too much. So we really had to like get focused, slow down, do less and get farther. And right as we like had reoriented the company toward that, toward that place, we were on our way, March, 2020 hit. So, you know, you don't, I mean, there aren't many instances where a a company goes through an existential crisis where the basis of their entire business is temporarily outlawed. And that I think is such a unique experience (laughs) and something that truly, if I thought those other trials and tribulations and hard times had, would make or break the company, this one was the, this was the Super Bowl of, of those, those were like, tea parties. That it's incredible because I'll think back and go, or many people, oh wait, oh my God, financial crisis. And you forget a big thing like that, which was tremendous, turned into actually what turned around the business, which I would imagine I would have never had any idea like, oh, people getting, they're going to start doing it. Like, like you don't even think of that or I don't. And then all of a sudden they're doing it. And all of a sudden that makes the business, which is incredible. And then talking about some of those hardships and going through it and then going public, what was, that must've been such a incredible moment, but then you had to get back to reality for you personally. How hard was that? Like all these great things happening. And then all of a sudden you feel like, uh uh-oh, we're back at ground zero kind of speak. Well, I mean, you know, going public was and will always be one of the most memorable moments because we were able to bring together our families, our first employees, our brightlings, we call ourselves and our customers. And we had this just amazing moment of celebration and appreciation for event creators and what they do, the entrepreneurialism, the grit, the artistry, the just the, they're our heroes. So it was, it was exactly what I wanted that moment to be for Eventbrite. And I'll always remember it for the rest of my life. One of the traders actually on the floor said, who opened our stocks that I've never seen this many children on the floor of the NYSE. And, and I'm like, well, we didn't even, I mean, this is just our family. It's like, this is just, you know, this is just us. Like, you know, and, uh, and it was great. So, um, so I think that was really emblematic of our culture and who we are. And listen, waking up in March of 2020 and realizing that something you've worked 14 years on is in absolute and utter like we were, we were on the precipice in 14 days of not existing. I mean, we were, we, and, and when I say we, I'm actually using the collective we, it wasn't Eventbrite, it was event creators. We're processing more refunds than revenue. We had negative revenue. And so to underscore that direness is almost impossible. And I remember having a moment, one moment, because it wasn't going to be useful to have this moment over and over again, where I just stood here in this room and I thought, I can't believe that I'm going to lose this so fast. Like this has been my whole adult life and our whole adult life. In the moment, I was a little bit, I was feeling sorry for myself, I think. But I thought like, okay, this is really fleeting and kind of like the way that people talk about life. And then I just was like, well, that's not going to happen. 
and hell hath no fury, fury like a mama bear who needs to protect a lot. And, and we just went to work. And so I remember coming home from that kind of first week of COVID when it was just total chaos and everyone had gone home to get their work from home setups figured out. And I came home, I was the last person to leave the office and I came home and our home office was set up in this almost like war room set up with a, with three, somehow Kevin had found these gaming monitors that created almost a complete circle with two chairs in the middle. And it was honestly one of the most romantic things he's ever done because the symbolism of that was, even though he was no longer operating at the company, he's the chairman, right? I'm at the time that COVID hit was four years into being CEO. It was like, you're not alone. We're going to work together to save the company. And it was about 50 Brightlings who worked 24-7 day and night to help us, plus another couple dozen advisors, including our board, including financial advisors. So it was a huge effort in a very short amount of time. But within uh, 45 days, we were completely reoriented, a smaller company with a runway, with a financial runway, able to just flip everything we were doing to start helping creators. And I am really proud of that because that, that took a lot. To get, to get us into that position. That was not a foregone conclusion. I mean, you would look at, at what was happening and go, well, this is over. I mean, it's incredible. And just take, and I hate to take you back, but take me back to those first few days and personally how you are, I know you said you went into action, but what was that like those days and like, was there anxieties? Were there like, do you, do you remember or have you blocked them out those times? Oh, no, <laughs> unlike childbirth, <laughs> you know, you don't block this out. I did what any, any great operator would do during a crisis. I made a spreadsheet and I still, I'll, I'll keep that spreadsheet forever because it was five columns of like, what are the things we need to do? The huge areas and people that we need to look out for. We need to look out for bright links. We need to look out for our event creators. We need to finance the company immediately because being in negative revenue with the liabilities of ticket sales that had happened but for events that weren't going to happen that was not a great place to be we needed to we needed to advocate we needed to get into into the lobbying conversation around small businesses so it was these sort of five different areas and then underneath that there are the people and underneath that there are the things that we did and i think it's just a snapshot of like how quickly we came together. And this was probably within the first 24 hours of us knowing that this was going to be, and we were at the tip of the spear. So we had some advanced signaling that this was going to be bad, but we had no idea how fast it would happen. And I, and I, when I say that it went down off a cliff in 14 days in terms of yeah. events getting canceled, ticket sales getting refunded, it was just, it was truly amazing. And I got into a mode of just, executing. I mean, it was so difficult. Every day felt like five. We were, we were basically orphaned our children. You know, we thank God for our, our family and others who are helping us. But Kevin and I were just in this room 20 hours a day, sleeping on the couch, like making our kids would sleep on the couch. It was just, it was kind of total chaos, but it was very intimate, right? Because we were all home. We were all sort of trying to figure it out. And I think it, it brought out the best in people. And for me as a leader, it really kind of obliterated any lasting hangover of lack of confidence that I might've had. You know, listen, I took over 
for for my husband who had run the company for 10 years. It's not like I wasn't always like compare and contrast and think about like, oh, who would have done this better? Well, that kind of went out the window forever after this experience, because turns out I'm a great sort of CEO in these moments. And and so everything came pretty clearly to me. There wasn't a lot of gray. It was kind of black and white. And I think that's what helped us, plus all the people around us who had great advice. We had very, very amazing people who would just pick up the phone and answer our questions. And there was just some really kind of wonderfully generous people during that time and sage wisdom that I'll never forget that I got. And and so I think what happened is once we knew that we were going to to be okay, that our team was going to be okay, that the company was going to be okay, which again was within a number of weeks, we were then able to just turn our attention to our event creators because we knew that their businesses were decimated in this. And what was what happened was that we started to see creators host their events as virtual events. And so in the very early days of COVID, I got in touch with Eric over at Zoom and we talked about, can we integrate to make it just easier for people to find these events once they buy a ticket to them? And it was incredible to see that creativity, that ingenuity come from our creator community. I'm not surprised, but it came fast. I mean, by the summer of of 2020, 95% of the events happening on Eventbrite were virtual. Yeah. It's amazing. And in the time we have left, I know I got to let you go, just how you were able to get through that. And I love the fact of you knowing, being able to get through that moment in the event business, regardless, almost every business, but the event business and turning it around virtual events and doing what you did and really taking that confidence and knowing, you know, if something else comes up, it's so hard to find it. And you found that. And I want to ask you before I let you go, Eventbrite has been all about building other companies, helping entrepreneurs host their events. Probably you've created so many, I mean, I I would imagine businesses and classes and, and opportunities for so many people. What is, when you think about Eventbrite now, what is the moment or what is it that you truly are most proud of? Well, I think I'm I'm most proud of our connection with our creator community. You know, I think about the the Corey Schneiders at New York Adventure Club who created something out of nothing to show people the unseen wonders of New York. And during COVID, he had almost an entirely empty set to turn all of his tours virtual. Or I think about Xavier at Soulful of Noise, who's creating these iconic cultural moments through family and music and food. And these folks have seen the absolute most stressful environments for their businesses. They've seen through it and they've come back in a way that is helping honestly, the entire world heal from this global pandemic. And so what we're focused on now is not only scaling Eventbrite's ticketing platform. I mean, I as a proud, proud founder, I have to say we processed $3.3 billion in ticket sales last Amazing. year. We helped event creators through our own channels. We drove almost $700 million in gross ticket sales for 5 million events last year, three, almost 300 million tickets. And we're back. Right. So what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with this new lease on life? We are focused on 
really helping event creators do the thing that they ask us most about, the job, the number one job we can do for them, which is help them build a bigger audience and engage more consumers to become attendees. And we can do that. We're, we're a two-sided marketplace today, and we're going to continue scaling that in a way that's fundamentally beneficial to event creators such that they can scale their businesses at a faster rate and they can spend less time doing tasks on Eventbrite, more time focused on producing the magic that really helps us all become better people. And also just be able to be more effective in promoting, marketing, advertising their events on Eventbrite. So that's our vision. Our North Star is really to like continue scaling, being the best partner to event creators and really help consumers understand that Eventbrite's a great place to come discover things to do in real life. And whether it's a St. Patty's Day weekend or it's just a Thursday night with friends, this is the place for you to discover things to do. And I think that's a really big unlock for our business as well. I love the fact that you told me early on that you got excited when you were back in your Hollywood days seeing these productions, right? And and it sounds like to me right now, you're back in a role where you're working with, whether it's creators then who are doing films or movies or TV shows, you're back in a role that you always had a passion for, which was, like you said, behind the camera and helping create these incredible productions. And it seems like to me, and I'm not sure, but you're at a really good moment with the business and what you're doing personally for the business. It feels like a dream come true, to be honest. I think, you know, it's been a, it's been a tough road to get here, but everything that is great is worth the hard work. And, you know, I think I'm just really happy that we're in such a position of strength to be able to help live events scale and to help people be able to build bigger businesses because we need these experiences. We need to be able to connect in real life in really meaningful ways. And, you know, that's something that I think is is both necessary for society and to get us out of this isolation and also something that really helps us build connection to those who that those who we serve. You know, Julia, I couldn't agree with you more. I thank you so much for coming on. You've been someone I've always admired from a distance, just being in the event business and, and what you and Kevin and the team built. It's really been a joy chatting with you. And I know, I mean, those numbers are staggering now that you're talking about in terms of the billions of dollars. And it's only going to get bigger is my belief because I really feel we are in an experience economy and it's gonna just continue. And, and now I could even root for you more getting to know you a lot better. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciated the conversation. You had it. Have a great day. You too. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T, T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. 
How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.